0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'm Jonathan Green. Welcome to this summer season of Blueprint for Living. Every week on Blueprint, we look at the world through places, spaces, food, gardens and design. Well, this summer, we're going to take one of those elements each week for a deeper dive. In this hour, a little subset of design, fashion. We'll consider the radical legacy of Issey Miyake, discover the history of British dandies, fancy, uh, read up on the enigma that is Anna Wintour, and have a listen as Colin Bissett considers the rather proper history of the top hat. If I conjuncted for you uh, the word pleats uh, with please, perhaps, you, you would immediately, I suspect, have a name pop into your head. Uh, we're talking about Issey Miyake, of course, the the celebrated Japanese designer who died earlier this month. He was eighty four. In fashion, he was was the designer's designer. His garments. He was a curious man. His garments, driven by the advances in, in textile science, but that clothing was was just a small part of his his overarching design philosophy. He did so much. He he loosened the the Eurocentrism of the fashion world that he came into. Tokyo became a a hub of the avant-garde in fashion. And of course, there was a a generation of of post-war designers in his wake. Uh, Robin Healy sat in a, a box seat during his rise. She was the National Gallery of Australia's inaugural curator of international fashion in the 1980s. And later became Senior Curator of Fashion and Textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria. And these were institutions among the first in this country to collect Miyake's work. Uh, you can now find Robin at RMIT University, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Learning and Teaching and, and leading the School of Fashion and Textiles. Robin, welcome.
2: Hi. Can you
1: remember your, your first brush with the work of Miyake?
2: I can. And it actually was through a a Melbourne magazine, Crowd Magazine. And Crowd Magazine was like a, um, a very limited edition local publication that had a correspondent from Tokyo. Hmm. And it, it, was, it was a very much like ID Magazine at that time. It was sort of a way to find out about a sort of an underground wave that was happening in design. Uh, Crowd looked at a range of different things, not just fashion. And also in my role as a a curator at the National Gallery of Australia, we were always looking at what was happening in contemporary design. So, as we started to see what was bubbling up in that sort of period of the early 80s, it became very clear that there was this very strong movement coming out of Tokyo. Um, And a way of looking at fashion that, that wasn't something we were used to. It was clothing as design. And I think that's really the big departure and why perhaps, mm. you know, Miyake has been sought after um, in museums as well as, as, as being a, um, a wearable
1: in, in many quarters. How does that notion of, of, of clothing as design, in, in his case, how does that differ from the haute couture of, of, of Europe? What's, what's the jumping off point?
2: I think the jumping up point is the way he approached the actual design process. And going back to your introduction about this sort of very Eurocentric way of of working, which went through a a process that was very much driven by um, dressmaking and tailoring techniques going back centuries. His idea was really like many designers, you know, looking at a material, a piece of cloth and building from that. Mm. He also looked at, you know, um, ways of wearing. So, sort of looking at how could he make something that actually embraced a range of different people, whether it was from their age, from their gender, from where they might wear something. So, he, he sort of took it on in a much more broader 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 scope. So in traditional fashion design, you sort of get typecast. You know, you're a menswear designer, you're a womenswear designer. <laughs> you know, you go, it's evening wear, it's day wear, it's this, it's that. You know, you get the colour trends. Mm. He went through a very deep dive into research and using research as any designer would. So looking both at advanced technologies and also at uh, traditional techniques. And then in the mix what might that become? He also was a collaborator. So rather than, you know, fashion designers have this big eye, you know, this big sort of, you know, rock star type mm-hmm. type persona. <laughs> we can
1: think of the names. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, so, so for me, it's also like the team philosophy, the collaborators. So if you look at who collaborated with Isamayake and also the studio he set up. So very much in tune with a design practice rather than the house of. Uh, rather, there's a whole range of things that that became much more subtle, but also in terms of uh, the impact of the clothing was continually inviting people in to collaborate, whether they were photographers, whether they were the people who designed the shops, whether they were people in the actual Miyake studio working with
1: him. It's a totality, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, of, of course, I mean, to take that back a bit, though, I mean, in the – in the 60s, he he earnestly went about learning his craft.
2: He did, because like any any good practitioner, you need to know what you're 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 moving against. So it's a precedent in the field. So once you start an area like he he began in a totally different field. He began in a in an art university, you know, in graphic design. So, for him to really depart and have this questioning of clothing, which was what he started to do in those early days, was to actually have to know the craft, to depart from the craft. And we see this in many cases with designers. To you to actually innovate, you need to understand, you know, the customary practice and I think it was very clever that he did end up going to Paris to study in a, in a traditional haute couture-type environment. But also um, a seminal moment for him was the 1968 uh, student demonstrations in Paris. Right. So it also sort of shifted this sort of moving away from, from what was the norm you know what? What could he depart from? And I think that's where his early thinkings in in Japan then grew even more intensely
1: after those moments in Paris. I, I wonder though if his you know his susceptibility to moment does, does that date back to his his boyhood in Hiroshima? Is that you know that there's a a thing of of historic crisis through his life?
2: There is, and and there's a very famous lecture that he gave that's quite moving in terms of going back to where he where he had been where he was born and as a child that experience so i think this is this sort of thoughtfulness in try and and fashion fashion has the baggage of being exclusive when you look at something that has a certain price point. Mm. So Miyake was always trying to have this sort of clothing for everybody, this sort of community around the clothing. And that's where I think those seminal moments really wanted him to push further of what clothing could do. And, you know, he was always striving for that. Whether he was successful at that, who knows, but he had an intention for actually trying to look at it quite differently and building this community for
1: everybody. But again, this 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 I think see, you know, it goes back to that that Hiroshima moment, surviving the, the nuclear blast and, and having this this sense, I think, in his his clothing of, of of hope, of optimism, that I think probably comes from that moment.
2: Absolutely. And I think I think when you see um, the impact of his work in, in exhibition space, so going back to my own background in in curatorial practice. You know, the way that he used those exhibition spaces, you know, public spaces that people could go in and and see the joy. I mean, uh, you know, some of his, you know, making things, the exhibitions, you know, that showed this incredible vitality uh, within pleats, within different types of garments and also making how things were made very much making people part of the performative part of all of that. so people could enjoy it through that as well. So I think that was also a very interesting aspect of his practice.
1: There you are in, uh, in, from 1982 as at the National Gallery of Australia, international curator of fashion. What was it about Miyake that you you, you wanted to to add him to the collection? What, what drew your eye there?
2: It was a moment. And like any like any contemporary art collection, contemporary design collection, um, you capture that moment. Some some of them will only last for a fleeting moment, and others will be enduring. Miyake's work ended up being enduring, but when we saw that departure, I mean, fashion collections, you know, you can basically tell you what's in them. You're going to have a Dior, you're going to have a this, you're going to have a that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so on. So you go. everyone will have one of those. You need a new look, you need a, you know, and so on. So to see something that really broke away from that um, and had this way that they could be combined in different ways, you know, some of them, the early ones didn't necessarily look, you know, like a, a glossy fashion garment, These were really earthy colours, natural dyes, shapes that wrapped around. It was very much about the materiality of them and this sort of layering and patterning um, and the the light and shade. So it had very much that Japanese aesthetic, those subtleties. So for a lot of people seeing them in an exhibition space in those early examples, they didn't necessarily have that wham-bam sort of aspect to them. Some of the later works, when you get to like body works, which is perhaps one of the most famous ones in terms of what you see in museums, where you get the bustiers that are made um, of fiberglass, which have actually molded the body. In that case, it was Lisa Lyons, the American um, bodybuilder. They stand as sculptures on their own. So in the early pieces, they were really about clothing on the body. And then Miyake moved away from that and the garments could exist on their own so they had these sort of multiple roles so in, in an art gallery you could display them in multiple ways so in the boutiques they, they didn't need a clothes hanger because they weren't actually <laughs> supporting <laughs> they weren't actually constructed well well even the sort of the coats a lot of them weren't even constructed t- to go on a conventional clothing system so they would be folded and put on shelves so, you get the most incredible aesthetic. So, part of it was also this aesthetic. So, when you look at the decorative arts and you start to see, you know, those sort of stellar people in, in, in um, sort of shifting practice, this was one of them because it also shifted what, what, what retail looked like in terms of this very clean look as you looked into a boutique with just these folded garments um, and a very different way of showing shape. So, you could put them on a wall because you had these incredible, incredible shapes. You could hang them on a stick.
1: Made for gallery (laughs) exhibition.
2: Well, this is where, and it really challenged people because you'd come in and you'd think, well, where are all the bodies? Can it go on the body? Yes, it could go on the body. Um, And then there were beautiful publications that complemented it where you would see people of different ages and backgrounds wearing these Miyake clothes or also photographers who took pictures of them.
1: This takes us to the 90s when he releases perhaps his his signature commercial collection, Pleats Please. What's the significance of that moment, that collection?
2: Well, I think Pleats Please also was starting to, there's several different things on Pleats Please. I think one of them was also looking at this sort of animation, animation of garments, and, and having this sort of liveliness where pleats gave Miyake this incredible palette of getting movement and shifting form. So rather than having a static, as someone moved, you actually, the garment would move with you. So it started to have this very different impact on, again, how we view a garment and not being able to control it, if that makes sense.
1: Well, and a wonderful counterpoint, though, in that movement to the, the sort of rigidity of the form of the pleat. It's... Uh... There's a nice duality in those things.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, because pleading you're controlling something (laughs) and you actually let it, you know, bounce out. It also provided, again, going back to the retail environment, you could concertina, some of the most famous ones, you can concertina down. So it's just a round, round, flat shape, and then it springs up like a jack-in-the-box. So you've got this incredible sense of, of movement and also colours Uh, Miyake has always experimented with ranges of colours and I think that's where, again, this liveliness in really quite, you know, um, intense colours and then going further with pleating by putting pattern on pleating. Uh, So, you actually have a visual image on top of these colours and, again, what happens when that moves. So, for wearers, they would be shifting all the time. It's not just having hmm. it in an exhibition where you can do all sorts of clever things in hanging it and doing whatever, but when it's on a body because the importance, and I don't want to take away from the importance of wearing because that's that's really where Miyake was from. Exhibition practice was something that invited other people in to know more about what he was trying to do, what the studio was trying to do. But certainly for the wearer, these were very simple garments that could easily be looked after um, and you just put them on and suddenly you were like a walking sculpture.
1: Well, that, that simplicity is an interesting thing as m- much as we talk about him in this this high design sense, I mean his intent well was not to be uh, an elite figure. his intent was to be accessible
2: exactly exactly so this is where so this is this always trying to find a form that could be for everybody so again, the pleated garments you know you shape, you could put on weight, they'd expand different heights didn't matter. You know, it, 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 was, it was this way of trying to get a more universal form of clothing. Um, also experimenting uh, with materials that perhaps were easier to look after, uh, thinking about longevity, trying to sort of test some of those things, those universals that we have. And certainly now in circular design, we're always seeking, you know, how can we get longevity out of something? Will it last? Will it have that enduring quality? And certainly, that's certainly at this stage, you know, Miyake is actually dealing with a lot of that.
1: Uh, you'll know this word, uh, Robin, because I, I, I can't bring it to mind, but it's it's a word which in Japanese, and, and, and Miyake uses this, is is both for clothing and happiness.
2: Uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to test me there in terms <laughs> of clothing and happiness. I know what he uses for a piece of cloth. APOC is his, 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 his most famous way of, of looking at clothing through a piece of cloth.
1: A, a wonderful quote, Robin, from Miyake, which I think goes to his, oh, something of his guiding philosophy. He says, his clothing means in Japanese haifuku. Then haifuku means happiness. And probably I'm trying to make haifuku happiness for the people and for myself. That, that's a, a beautiful ambition, Robin.
2: I think so, and I I think it comes from a good place. It's not the marketing people doing that for him. So I think this is also where going back to as a designer, you know, always seeking that aspiration of how he could, you know, build this community that could actually enjoy this clothing. And that's why also in exhibition practice, it did bring incredible happiness when people visited those exhibitions. Um, the works have this way of of people you know want to have conversations around them, and they do ignite certain things, and I think that's 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 probably one of the things that Miyake um, re- really brought to the fore those sort of conversations about clothing and also the playfulness for both a wearer and also a viewer.
1: Which changes design culture both in in japan and and the west in in fundamental ways.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and then and then also trying to to reduce down. Um, you know h- how you make something. So, you know, often um, you know couturiers and great fashion designers are, are sort of praised for the intricacies of their designs and all the detail. And you know, I Miyake mean, was detailed, but he was always trying to par it down. How could he, you know, um, minimize? Various steps within something, and that's where I mentioned before, Apoc piece of cloth,
0: mm.
2: which um, was a very famous collaboration with da fujiwara which again was looking at this technology, where you used industrial knitting machine or a weaving machine on a computer, and you could just create the garment with the push of the button. It would come out in a certain length, and you just chop it off <laughs> where you wanted it to stop. So. Again, when you think of that sort of that, that mystique around making processes and, and especially often, you know, fashion can labour this in, in, you know, with haute couture, the number of stitches, the number of hours, all those sorts of things, they suddenly you have this thing which is like you push the button, there it is, you know, as soon as you get to the length you want, you cut it off. Um, so I think in terms of starting to shift, um, you know, how we think about making. Uh, it doesn't take away from the, the incredible, you know, technologies or the actual aesthetic of the piece. But it does start to think about, you know, waste. It does start to think about um, how you could go into a boutique, push a button, and you could just create that rather than having this surplus stock. So, again, changing
1: what retail
2: might look like.
1: Perhaps a, a piece of cloth, a suitable a suitable epigraph. Robin, thank you. Beautiful to spend some time in this this great man's legacy.
2: And thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Robin Healy, a former curator in fashion at NGA and NGV, uh, now at RMIT University as deputy vice chancellor of learning and teaching and head there of the School of Fashion and Textiles. It was Oscar Wilde who who observed, and, and would no doubt be gratified by its enduring quotability, uh, observed that there, there was only one thing in the world worse than being talked about. He spoke as a man who's, whose life was a study in being the subject of conversation. He spoke as a dandy. For the dandy looking swell, perhaps with, with wit to match, is, was a, a way of life and the influence of of that movement of dandyism reaches far beyond mere fashion and conversation. As Dominic James discovers in his his latest book, British Dandies, Engendering Scandal and Fashioning a Nation... Uh, Dominic is Professor of Modern History at Keele University, uh, and, and he joins us. Dominic, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. The idea of the dandy, it sort of rolls off the tongue, but do we truly understand in general conversation what that means?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, the term is banded around a lot nowadays, as it was 200 years ago when it was first coined. And some people use it as a very kind of dismissive phrase, saying that someone is basically a bit superficial, a bit narcissistic, maybe a bit full of themselves. (laughs) You know, who do they think they are? Whereas other people use it in a slightly different way to say, oh, look at that person over there. Wow, they've got a certain something, they've got a certain style, which is not just about trying to look good, but also to be very much an individual.
1: It's, it is that thing, is it not, of standing out from the crowd. There's there's hmm. a sense of of, of of quiet elitism in the notion of, of being a dandy. Yes, that's part of the controversial quality to it.
3: And that, I think, connects with our kind of love-hate relationship with individualism. On the one hand, we really like to think that we are individuals, there's something special about us as particular people. On the other hand, we tend to prickle a bit at the thought that someone is kind of setting themselves up above us. And that's one of the reasons why the figure of the dandy is controversial, looked up to on one level and kind of sneered at at the same time. How did this begin? Well, there are people called dandies in britain and in various places that speak english there are of course people who are also doing forms of dandyism in lots of other cultures and lots of other languages but mine is a case study basically of the british style of dandy The word actually comes into widespread use at the end of the 18th century during the period of the Napoleonic Wars, at a time when military uniforms were terribly fashionable and to have well-cut clothes and suits was important. But in the book, I also talk about a prehistory of the dandy, which goes back at least through the 18th century into the 17th century. And it really originates from a kind of contestation between more puritanical moralistic people who thought that one should try to look plain and godly, and more, shall we say, self-assertive flamboyant people who thought you should try and use style to stand out in society.
1: Is there a point of departure in this, and perhaps it comes to a a, a rise of people outside of the traditional aristocracy, a point of departure from where fashion is a thing which is a strict line of descending impersonation from the king or queen on down? Mm. Really, really great question, because
3: the other thing about dandyism is that It's not just about wearing a uniform or following an individual fashion. It's also about creating your own fashion in a way. It's a little bit about being uh, individualistic, as we were saying. And if you go back to times like the Renaissance through the 17th century, a lot of fashion was about court culture and royal courts in Europe and was often set literally by the king or queen and their retinue and so if you wanted to kind of get ahead in society you looked to see what the royal family was up to and you basically uh, elegantly copied it and this is the one of the arguments about where the widespread wearing of wigs actually came from because courtiers started copying king's practice wearing a wig in france now in Britain after the period of the civil wars in the mid 17th century, the monarchy was restored. But it was a monarchy that had to kind of assert its difference from the France where it had been in exile so that people wouldn't just say, oh, come Mm. on, you know, this is the door by which France is going to take us over. And literally Charles II decided that he was going to have a different style of dress, The style of dress he picks, is actually something slightly exotic. It's a a sort of precursor of the current business suit, <laughs> rather than something called doublet and hose, which was the Renaissance style, which is basically a short jacket and then what we might think of as rather sort of poofy rounded shorts. And this, what was billed as a kind of plainer style, using good British materials, for example, woolen cloth rather than imported French silk, is actually established in Britain. And it is quite new. It's quite radical. It's actually ultimately suggested to be based on Indian costume and pyjama suits. And partly, I think, because it's a new style, various of the rich people, because it does take money to have clothes made for yourself, (laughs) uh, start to experiment with it. And you get plainer and more elaborate versions of this and so the precursor debates about dandyism are all about how plain or how ornamented these very early precursors of the
1: gentleman's suit should be is it in this period that we see the rise of the macaroni which is always (laughs) oh yes uh, 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 they're great i'm always attracted by the name if nothing else (laughs)
3: Oh, yes. Actually, that's very important in the 18th century, which is where we are in relation to these dandies who are known as macaronis. I mean, the reality for most people in the 17th, 18th century is, if in doubt, they probably didn't have enough to eat. And so fussing around about precisely what style statements you were going to make by right. the food you, the kind of food you eat, just like the kind of clothes you wear. Well, that's a bit of a statement of status uh, in itself. To so the macaronis, they were a type of dandy who were characterised by their taste for Italian culture, <laughs> and of course, macaroni is basically pasta. So. What happened is that the youth of well-off families, not necessarily just aristocrats, but you need to have a certain amount of money to carry this off, would be sent on something called the Grand Tour. And what it basically is, is a journey down through France into Italy in the Mediterranean. You were meant to spend a few months there. Mm. And the idea was sort of that you pick up a kind of polishing in classical culture, because this This is a period when yeah you'd sketch ruins you'd sit around with a tutor reading latin poetry and all this kind of stuff um now at that time this was regarded as the height of intellectual sophistication because the greek and roman classics were still prized as a kind of cornerstone of knowledge now in fact when you were down there in italy I think quite a few of the young gentlemen spent their time drinking, (laughs) perhaps even whoring um, and generally misbehaving themselves and partying, basically. They come back to Britain and they picked up foreign tastes. And these involve things like uh, perhaps wanting Italian food like pasta and dressing in more French-influenced fashions. If in doubt, a lot of those French fashions are a bit more flamboyant than the British ones with their slightly more toned-down precursor of the suit. So these young men arrive in London, they're dressed up in the height of French fashion, literally the height because Some of their wigs were noted as being ostentatiously tall. I
1: was going to say, I mean, describe that rig. What are these gentlemen wearing? (laughs) So, I mean,
3: the main thing you need to think about is, I remember reading this terrifically titled academic article. Most academic articles have very long titles, but this one was just called Big Hair. (laughs) So the crucial (laughs) thing about macaroni's wig style Was big and tall. So the wig is built upwards. The hair is then carried down at the back, with a huge lump of it tied up into a big bag. It's called a bag wig. And the macaroni style specifically was provided with a small hat that sat somewhere a long way up the top of this wig, rather like a modern style fascinator. So the overall (laughs) approach would have been quite spectacular. (laughs) Now, you could decide what you thought this looked like. On the one hand, you could think, wow, what a tall, magnificent figure of a man. Uh, the effect is a little bit like these British soldiers with their kind of hair hats, these Busbys that they wear make them look tall and scary in theory. Or you could have a look at this and think, well, I'm terribly sorry, but you look absolutely ridiculous. And uh, a lot of people in Britain then attacked these this macaroni style as not looking swish and fabulous, but actually looking, frankly, they didn't use this term, but basically camp and what they called
1: effeminate. And how much of the effeminizationing of of these styles, is this often an expression of sexual preference in in some of these adaptations?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. So one of the grounds on which dandies were attacked, and what I really want to emphasise here is it wasn't just like you know the back page of the menswear supplement where this was debated these were things that were debated on the front page of the newspapers uh when it was asked whether prominent influential figures and politicians were or were not macaronis or dandies Uh, one of the things that happens is that there's a a long lasting tradition in Britain from the 17th century of trying to call out dressy men as being self-obsessed. And of course, if you're self-obsessed, you're not actually very obsessed with the ladies. Now, that kind of accusation starts to drift through the later part of the 18th century, and one of the things that drives it is a series of public scandals and legal cases where gentlemen of fashion, as they were called, were sometimes implicated in sodomy trials. Mm. Now, the word homosexual hadn't been invented yet. It's invented in the 19th century. Uh, but people certainly did know about um, unnatural sex because The act of sodomy, which could be basically anal sex between two men, or it could actually be anal sex between a man and a woman, or it could be with an animal, uh, was a capital crime. So what happens in the newspapers is that we get lots of increasingly unsubtle innuendo associating certain macaronis with sodomy basically. And this is where the Italian connection comes in. So I'm not making any comment on what Brits or French people or Italians are really like, but there was a kind of proto-homophobic feeling in Britain, Mm. that Britons were somehow morally more secure than other lesser nations, and that in particular, Roman Catholic countries were prone what they termed sodomitical vice. And the reason for this is that Roman Catholicism, unlike British Protestantism, required that priests remain unmarried. And so there was a suspicion that these unmarried men were getting up to dubious things. So the suggestion is that macaronis and dandies who went down to France and Italy were picking up Um, How can I put this not just a taste for macaroni, but a taste for rather spicier things as well.
1: Rigatoni as well I mean. Uh, oh absolutely <laughs> ravioli stuffed with who knows what the, the, This notion <laughs> though that, that the style uh, that can yeah. suggest the behaviour I mean Oscar, Oscar Wilde himself in his court case where he's being tried over sodomy it, it makes the point that I'm being tried not so much for the as giving the appearance of one who might engage oh, yeah.
3: in it. Yeah oh absolutely. In the the 19th century, we have a period when being dandified becomes ever more visually kind of spectacular and ever more debated. This is the period of the Regency dandies and the figure, for example, of Beau Brummel. In the later 19th century, we have some very famous people, including Oscar Wilde, who very self-consciously looked back to some of the dandy styles of a century earlier, and experimented both with dressing up in a spectacular way, but sometimes also dressing down in a spectacular way. Mm. But Wilde himself was often called out for posing as something, and that's one of the things that he self-consciously talks about. because. One of the things about Wilde is that he was, unlike a lot of the previous dandies, he was an intellectual. So he liked to theorize about these things. And a lot of his theories were about the significance of, I suppose, what nowadays people would talk about as performance or performativity. In other words, you are who you appear to be, which was quite a radical statement at the time. Mm. Because a lot of people believe that people were somehow inherently sort of good or bad, and they had an inner truth. But at the same time, they also sort of believed that you could tell someone's character by their face. Those two things aren't easily compatible, and Wilde was kind of poking around and having fun with that.
1: I'm thinking it's entirely possible, Dominic, that that young man serving me my coffee with his impeccably trimmed beard, his, his carefully chosen tattoo, his wonderfully arranged, slightly retro clothing mm-hmm. may have a, a hint of the dandy about him.
3: Right. I mean, that's really interesting. One of the other questions that ties into that, you as the young man, is also the question of, kind of what about women and can women be dandies? And that actually was something that was debated quite hotly through the whole period of the book. And some people said, yes, of course they can. Everyone can, because it's a style of being careful about your clothing. But in fact, other people came back and said, well, no, not really. And the reason here is a bit of a kind of, Sexist division, which is that through most of the kind of European past over the last few centuries, women have been expected to be interested in fashion and to spend a lot of the time at looking at themselves and thinking about clothes. Whereas men, on average, have been thought to distinguish themselves by not spending so much time on those things. That's one of the reasons why. Dandies were called out for being effeminate because supposedly spending a lot of time carefully selecting what you're going to look like could be argued to be acting
1: like a woman. I think there is an entirely separate conversation uh, be- beginning there, Dominic. Uh. But we we, we we must contain ourselves, I'm afraid, because of time. Uh, the book, sure. the book is British Dandies: Engendering Scandal and Fashioning a Nation. Its author is. Dominic James. Uh, Dominic, thank you so very much. You're welcome. I mean, I clearly,
3: as you can tell, I'm fascinated by this. I'm reserving questions about whether I too am a dandy for another conversation. Uh, but <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's an endlessly fascinating topic.
1: British dandies. It's, it's available in, in shops and libraries. And Dominic is Professor of Modern History at, at Keele University. some word association if if i say anna you say well quite probably wintour and that's a test of fame that that first name familiarity instant association from a, a single word anna wintour uh, editor in chief at vogue since 1988 a, a length of tenure that's that's almost almost unfashionable a, a very public position inhabited by a woman who has remained Enigmatic in many ways. Author Amy O'Dell is a fashion and culture journalist and she's been on a mission to, well, to get behind that enigma, to find out who the woman is behind the, the manicured bob, the ubiquitous sunglasses. She's the author of Anna, uh, a biography. It, it peels back the layers of fashion's most influential figure. It's, it's a New York Times bestseller. So, Amy, welcome and Congratulations.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Can I start
1: with the sunglasses? Do do we know the make? The model.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because she wears in recent years maybe Chanel sunglasses, but she <laughs> when she first started wearing the glasses, they uh, were often Ray Bans, and you know the sunglasses are part of what has contributed to her enigmatic persona that she has maintained for thirty four years, which not many people have had the opportunity to see beneath and mm. Many people who have known Anna for a long time even still describe her as complicated and have a hard time understanding her. And in writing Anna, the biography, I had the opportunity to interview more than 250 people, many of whom are very close to Anna and have never spoken on the record before and uh, have the opportunity to describe to readers who this very powerful woman really is. That
1: thing of withholding, that thing of, of maintaining mystery... Is that calculated from her or is that just an accident of character?
0: Some people think that she's calculated and some people think it's an accident. She's a woman with a lot of duality. She is someone who you could be out with her at a party. You could be laughing and having a sort of friendly encounter with her. And Mm -hmm. then the next morning at the office, see her and she'll be very icy to you. And it's as though that interaction from the night before never, ever happened.
1: I wonder why. I wonder what the thinking is. (laughs) I mean, did did you, in your work, you say you talked to 250 people and many of them very close. Did you come to an understanding, do you think? Have Have you got behind the sunglasses?
0: Yes, I think I have got behind the sunglasses, which are actually prescription. Anna has said in public that the glasses are to hide what she is thinking or feeling and that may be partly true but it, she really wears them because also uh, so she, she can see, see. <laughs> yeah but that's just kind of an example of how she she's just not really been very forthcoming as many of us know she's someone who has worked very very hard to get where she is she's very focused she's very ambitious she tries very hard to stay engaged with youth culture with culture broadly she can be cold and she can be icy at the office, but people also described her as someone who absolutely loves her family, adores her grandchildren, has changed their diapers, (laughs) loves her dogs. (laughs) Many people have seen a warm side to her that others haven't seen. And so many things about reporting this book surprised me. For instance, that she wants to be known for her philanthropy and not for anything that she's done as a magazine editor.
1: Shes steeped in, in in the practice of media, of course her her father was a an editor himself. What was his impact on her her early life?
0: Charles winter is anna 's father and he was the editor in chief of The Evening Standard, which was a very influential newspaper in London, and he had that job. He worked at the paper from the end of World War II uh, through the 60s, uh, swinging the swinging 60s mm. in London, when Anna came of age, in which she credits with sparking her passion for fashion. He had a background as a political journalist, and he was known for covering hard news, but also taking culture just as seriously. And it was a very vibrant cultural moment in London, of course, and her parents had dinner parties quite often at their home, and they would invite politicians or uh, well-known journalists from the Evening Standard, and she was exposed from a young age to this intellectual, glamorous milieu.
1: He cut her off without a penny, though, didn't he, in his will?
0: It is true that his her father did not leave her anything in his will. However, at that Point. this would have been the late 90s, I she believe. was doing okay. And Anna <laughs> was making, surely, a, a lot of money. And she also, as I report in the book, she had a number of privileges that really enabled her to succeed in media, including benefiting from a trust fund that her mother's father set up for his grandchildren. Anna received payments out of that trust from the time she was really starting her career. And she continued receiving those payments for many years. It mm. wasn't, I want to be clear, it wasn't so much money that she would never have to work, but it was enough money that she could afford to make mistakes or take jobs that didn't pay that well.
1: That's a great gift. You mentioned that 60s London, the, the miniskirts and bobbed hair. I mean, it was suddenly a style that perhaps suited young Anna, who was a bit of a tomboy.
0: Yes, as a child, uh, friends of hers from the time said she was a tomboy. She was not at all interested in her clothes. She would go to grade school with her uniform askew, with her knees (laughs) scraped up.
1: And and sunglasses, Uh, of course.
0: (laughs) No sunglasses. She was primarily interested in sports and physical activity. Hmm. And that was how she related to her classmates. But she's also someone who never liked school. She's a very smart woman, she's always read a lot. She reads a lot today she never liked school.
1: I one of those kids for whom school was a bit slow. <laughs> that <could've been> the-
0: <laughs> yes, knowing, knowing as much as I know about her now, I can I can kind of understand, you know, if you're not someone who wants to spend more than 15 minutes in a work meeting, you might have a hard time sitting through hours and hours of lectures every day.
1: Destined for journalism and and she starts out at House and Garden, which which didn't go well.
0: No, so Anna had a number of jobs as a fashion editor. Before she became an editor-in-chief, her first editor-in-chief job was in London running British Vogue. And then she came back to New York, where she really, really wanted to be. And connie Nast gave her house and garden to run. And this is one of the things that many people see as a failure on her resume because she changed the magazine so drastically. She introduced fashion. She had models uh, in the Bagatelle Gardens of Paris wearing dresses and highlighting fashion in a magazine in which people had never really appeared before. And I realize that that sounds kind of weird today because if you think <laughs> of a interior magazine today, you expect to see personalities in those images. You expect to see celebrities in their homes and things like that. But this was not typical for the time at all. So she introduces this approach. She changes the name of the magazine to HG. Subscribers and readers get very upset. They start calling Condé Nast to cancel their subscriptions. Advertisers pull out. With HG sort of taking a nosedive, it is in this moment that she is tapped to become the editor-in-chief of American Vogue in the summer of 1988.
1: She becomes such an extraordinarily influential and powerful person. I mean, she determines so much of the world's sense of style. What what a remarkable achievement in a career.
0: Her success is unmatched in magazines, in fashion, but... Even beyond that, I would argue, if you think of business leaders generally, so Anna Wintour, as we've said, has been at Vogue as editor-in-chief for 34 years. Jeff Bezos left Amazon after 27 years. I think the average CEO tenure these days is, is five or less. So her longevity is really unusual. It is unmatched. And... Some people I spoke with feel like her cultural innovation in that time is on par with Steve Jobs.
1: Amy, congrats on the book. Do you know how it's been received by its hero?
0: <laughs> I don't know how Anna feels about the final product. I am just as curious as anybody else. I'm sure you are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day that secret will be revealed. Uh, Amy O'Dell, (laughs) she's a, a fashion and culture journalist and the book in question is Anna, the biography, and you'll find that in shops and libraries. Every week on Blueprint for Living, design critic and author Colin Bissett introduces us to something iconic. Colin?
4: You'd be hard-pressed to come up with a more ridiculous fashion item than the top hat. And yet, as silly fashions go, it's somehow survived for over two centuries. Its origin is uncertain. Most fashions emphasise a particular line, from crinolines to codpieces, and it's entirely likely that the first top hat was the answer to a customer's simple request to look taller. Why else would you place a cylindrical hat on your head if not to add to your height? According to one tale, when milliner George Dunnage in London released his first top hat to the world in 1793, it caused a riot. Which seems surprising, given people hadn't long stopped wearing powdered wigs of ludicrous design. By the end of the 19th century, though, the top hat was ubiquitous, as popular with dukes as relatively ordinary folk. In Britain, it was popularised by Beau Brummel, the original dandy-about-town, who made it a jaunty favourite of his friends, the relentlessly vain future King George IV. Across the Channel in France, the Hat found friends with a group of subversive toffs called the incroyables, or Incredibles, who wore bizarre outfits to counter the austerity imposed after the French Revolution. It was not uncommon for them to wear top hats of twice the height of any other and in a variety of loud colours. The hat itself was first made from a single piece of wool shaped on a wooden mould and then covered with a fine fur felt. By the middle of the 19th century they were often made in two pieces using cheesecloth that was stiffened with layers of shellac and then covered in fur felt. Making this felt involved mercury, which caused terrible afflictions to hat makers, including mental disturbance, hence the Mad Hatter in the Alice in Wonderland tales. In eighteen forty, a French milliner called Antoine Gibus came up with a spring loaded version called a Gibus that gentlemen could remove and flatten when at the opera. The fashion for them was unstoppable. The engineering genius Isambard Kingdom Brunel was only five feet tall and so a top hat added to his self-confidence. But American President Abraham Lincoln was well over six feet and still favoured what was popularly called in America a stovepipe hat. It's said that he kept important papers in it and that it was once holed by a would-be assassin's bullet some years before an assassin with better aim completed the job. The height of top hat fashion is best illustrated by the Belle Epoque paintings of Toulouse-Lautrec, but it slowly fell from fashion in the 20th century as a more classless society began to assert itself. Fred Astaire made the top hat glamorous in the 1934 film of the same name, as did Marlena Dietrich in the film Morocco of 1930, adding to her dangerous appeal. But the top hat's days were numbered. Increasingly relegated to formal weddings, funerals and racecourses, they became, like the bowler hat, a cartoonish symbol of the past. Perhaps it started in 1957 with the release of Dr Seuss's The Cat in the Hat, with its wonky red and white striped top hat. By the 1960s, the top hat had been appropriated by rock stars in jeans and Afghan coats. And so it's continued, still glamorous in a Madonna video or dressed up with feathers by Elton John, but seen for what it really always was part of a costume a silly thing a ridiculous thing but an icon of style no question and no one can pull a rabbit out of a hat quite like it
1: colin thank you i i dips me lid Uh, all colin's icons are gathered along with all the blueprint stories of the abc listen app